I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As you travel to the furthest tip of western Ukraine, in the shadow of the Carpathian Mountains, where the River Tisa forms a winding border with Romania and Hungary, it feels a world away from the cold, flat steppes. It was quite warm. There were lots of birds. I saw things like shrikes, which I hadn't seen before. Some really nice harriers. I quite like my bird sales. You know, there was a lot going on in beautiful territory. But it is also, by the nature of the hills and the forests, a great place for smugglers and smuggling routes. Traditionally so, this involves cigarettes going out of Ukraine. Now, it involves people getting smuggled out of Ukraine or trying to get out by themselves. Since the war began almost two years ago, Men aged between 18 to 60 have been banned from leaving the country. And since then, border patrols have arrested over 17,000 of them trying to escape, many across the River Teaser. It's not a nice river to swim. The stretch I saw was about 80 yards wide, but really fast flowing. Average about waist or chest deep, but it's mountain water, so even in the summer it's cold. It's full of obstacles, rocks and, you know, fallen trees. It's no easy thing to do. It's a desperate move. And people are desperate. Some of the men trying to cross the river are desperate to see their wives and children who had to leave Ukraine because of the war. Others are trying to find work. And then there are the men who are risking their lives to escape what they see as certain death on the front line. Some of the flotation devices are pathetic. I mean, they've got these guys wearing rubber rings and little flamingo armbands a few weeks ago. Then they had some guy who went down on, it was bigger than a lilo, it was like an inflatable mattress. <laughs> and he was wearing a pink hat. He wanted to make out like he was insanely a, a child on a kind of pink mat rafting down the river. a sign of battered morale? And how much does Ukraine's war effort need them? Mobilisation is the subject being most talked about in Ukraine at the moment, with this new law being debated to get a half million new soldiers 
from being civilians up to the front. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Ukraine and the desperate measures to avoid conscription. My name is Anthony Lloyd and I'm a special correspondent for The Times. And you've just come back from Ukraine again. And you are very much dressed apart. What, what are you wearing? I'm wearing my black Vashivanka, which is a traditional Ukrainian shirt. And it was given to me by two Ukrainian friends in um, September last year when it was my birthday. And I'm delighted with it. It's made out of linen. It's very cool. And, it's embroidered. Um, it's beautifully it's embroidered. embroidered. Yes, the front is embroidered and all in black, which is slightly gloomy color, which I like. And you've just come back from another trip to Ukraine. It's becoming a very regular thing for you. Just give us a sense of your your impression of, of where the country is this time compared to, you know, other trips you've done. It's interesting. Nobody likes to use the word stalemate, particularly in Ukraine. It's highly contentious because it gives the impression that the war has somehow got stuck and gridlocked. But in many ways, that is the position of the war at the moment. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. I mean, war is an active and dynamic thing always, even if front lines don't move. But the key thing is, what are the effects of the type of attritional warfare that has has gone on over the past 12 months on the long-term fate of the war? When you look at the capacity and numbers of those available in Russia and compare them with the capacity and numbers of soldiers and potential soldiers in Ukraine, it actually disadvantages Ukraine heavily. So can Ukraine continue to sustain itself, to man its army in a way that can help it achieve its war goals in the long term? That is the question. No one knows the answer to that question at the moment. But I would say at the moment, the position of the war advantages Russia. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Before we do, though, you travelled around the country. You got sort of um, a real snapshot. You also went down to Donbass, which is very much the front. Tell us a bit about that. You, you met an Azov brigade. Yeah, I spent a day with the 12th Special Purpose Brigade Azov, who are um, originally Mariupol-based, were very much uh, involved in, in the defense of the Azov-style steel plant. It's been reconstituted as a brigade. It's actually got some of the original Azov-style survivors who uh, were taken prisoner and then later released in, in a prisoner exchange. But it's one of the few brigades in the Ukrainian army now. It's actually National Guard Force, but it's, it's part of the Ukrainian army which is manned entirely by volunteers or by experienced professional soldiers. Most brigades in the Ukrainian army now are, you know, the soldiers are mobilized people. The army, if you think about it, has had kind of three generations in Ukraine. There's the original regular army, which including border guards, numbered about 250,000 just before the Russian invasion. Now, over the past two years, the war is just entering its third year on February the 24th. The original army has been terribly degraded. You get a second generation, which is the volunteers. And we saw that thousands and thousands of men and some women too volunteering in the early months of the war. That volunteer army has also been heavily degraded. You know, there are still volunteers alive, 
But we're looking now at a mobilised, predominantly mobilised force. So the guys in the trenches a few weeks ago or a few months ago were the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and they didn't necessarily volunteer to fight. You have very articulate, you know, conversations with guys on the front line who will say, well, I didn't really want to be a soldier and I didn't want a war, but Russia's invaded my country. I carried on doing my job and looking after my family until my call-up papers came. But they did arrive and my country needs me. Then you meet other guys who uh, are not happy with being in the trenches at all. We'll talk about that in, in a moment. But before we do, so there you are in the Donbass. You're meeting this Azov Brigade who are sort of that sec- second category. These are the people who volunteered to yeah, fight. Yeah, tough, committed guys. What, what were they doing? I met three lots of them, actually. The first were an artillery unit, so we're on the front lines, or not the front lines, should I say, the artillery positions near Sivirsk. Sivirsk is held by Ukrainians in the Donbass area. So this is it was actually an Italian-made howitzer, and these were very well-trained, very well-trained. It looked very much like a kind of Western battery. You know, Azov's had in its time a, a reputation for being originally a kind of right-wing and sometimes a militia with quite extremist members in it. The image of Azov has changed dramatically over time. Sure, if you want to find somebody with loads of, you know, runic tattoos and some kind of rightist vision, you can still find that there. But you'll also find a lot more quite young guys in their 20s who are just motivated to have joined a professional, well-armed, well-trained and dedicated unit. After some time spent on the gun line, I actually met a couple of guys from uh, one of the Azov storm units, the assault groups. You know, their whole soldiers' life is spent attacking Russian trenches. And they were oddly both law students. They both volunteered right at the beginning. One was a company second in command. And I said to him, um, oh, what rank are you? I guess you must be a captain. And he just looked at me and said, no, I'm a sergeant. A lot of people died. Uh, I was just wow. in that. Wow. Yeah, just you that. get promoted in yeah. weeks. A very, very articulate and intelligent guy uh, it's like, you know, in another world, I wanted to be a lawyer, but, you know, infantry commander as of storm unit. And then there was there was another guy with him who had just come back from a mission the day before. Uh, a trench had been lost to one of the Russian penal units. So this isn't Wagner convicts, it's, it's other convicts working for the Russian army. So Russian convicts who are now fighting on the front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They'd taken a trench. This guy had been tasked, I think, with five others to, to go and get it back. He didn't go into the full details. I know that there were some dead Ukrainian soldiers around the trench. He said the approach route to get to the trench to take it back was more difficult than he thought. And I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. He didn't really want to describe it. It was in the Kremina forest. Him and his guys killed the Russian convict soldiers when they retook the trench. But he was this very, very tired, washed-out, tough guy whose whole business as a storm unit commander is, you know, close quarter fighting and all that involves. I asked him how many of the original guys they joined up with were still around in the unit, and it was, you know, a fraction. 
of what it had been. So, Anthony, there you've got this Azov Brigade who, you know, there's a lingering sadness. You know, in another world, these people might have been lawyers by now. They're having to fight, but they're very determined. They're very good at what they do. And they are really at the sharp end of all of this. You also visited a mobilized unit. So these are people who haven't volunteered themselves. They've been told they're joining the army and they're suddenly having to fight. What was that like? So number one, the age. The average age of a Ukrainian soldier in the trenches is now, I think, 43. Wow, that sounds old for a front line. It is. And also, the physical erosions of being on the front, I mean, given the temperatures of winter, the amount of lifting one's having to do, yeah, you can do it. You can be a really fit 43-year-old, but for your average guy who was, I don't know, running the garage a few weeks ago, yeah. was given six weeks training and put out there, it's tough. It's tough physically being a soldier, particularly an infantry soldier or even an artillery unit, you know, hauling around those shells the whole time. Is the reason the average age is 43, is that because so many of the young ones have died? No, that's really interesting because counterintuitively, Ukraine is not mobilising its 18-year-olds. Which is what we would have done. Yes, totally. You can volunteer as an 18-year-old in Ukraine and join the army, that's for sure. But if you're between the ages of 18 and 27... As it stands, you are not allowed to leave the country, but you will not be mobilised to the front line. You know, it's quite an erudite army, and there's a sense in Ukraine that we need to preserve our university students, their lives, that there is that sensitivity, which is odd, because, as you say, in many countries in the world, be like, okay, well, let's do it the other way around. Someone's really in their peak physical condition when you match physical capacity and stamina at about 27. That's the peak. Mm. But the run-up of fitness to that starts really at 18. So it's fine to mobilise people who are 18, but no, not in Ukraine. So you've got this sort of slightly older units of people who were doing regular jobs very recently, have now been told they have to join the army. How are they doing? What was it like? And what was morale like amongst amongst them? It it varies a lot. So amongst the mobilised, there's also a lot more effort to place people whose civilian profession will fit a specific role within the army. At the beginning of the war, that wasn't really happening. So you've got really bright IT specialists who are just being, you know, put into bunkers with a Kalashnikov. Now there's much more effort to kind of fit civilian roles with things which are needed in the army. I met a, a tank crew out there this time. One of the drivers was a mobilized guy. Oh, my God. They'd been involved some time ago now in one particular action where they were supporting Ukrainian infantry who had just been thrown out of a trench line by Wagner convicts, actually. It went in close quarters to the Russians, blasted the Russians with tank fire, and then ground over them with the tank treads, just grinding the Russians, literally, physically, into the trench line. They squashed about 12 Russian soldiers. I'd seen the footage, so I asked this guy who was a tractor driver. Hang on, you're driving tractors and now you're, you know, in a tank grinding people into the dust, always worried that you're about to go over a mine or get shelled. How is it? And he was quite kind of matter of fact about it. He was like, yeah, it took a bit of getting used to. So he was an example of a guy who was quite pragmatic about his new lifestyle, which involved the most horrific things. But for others, you know, I've met people who are quite begrudging to be there. And then there are other guys who will, a lot of them, will actively try and escape the country rather than get involved in the army. 
coming up. We head back to the River Teaser, where desperate men are risking their lives to flee Ukraine and conscription. And Anthony finds one man who gets stuck on the riverbank trying to sneak back in, but not to fight. That's all explained in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So... Anthony, you've told us about the the volunteer brigade who are very focused, very good at what they do, still really pushing ahead. You've got the mobilised units who are a bit more mixed. And then, as you said earlier, you've got this third group, which is the people who are so desperate not to be mobilised that they're trying to leave the country. You went down to the River Teaser at one point. Just describe, what was it like? So the River Teaser is in western Ukraine, and for some of its length, it comes down from the Carpathian Mountains, for some of its length, it forms the border between either Ukraine and Romania or Ukraine and Hungary. Beautiful territory, but it is also a great place for smugglers and smuggling routes. Hmm. Tell me about that. What sort of, who is, who is trying to be smuggled in and <clears throat> out of Ukraine? So, predominantly, it's men and quite young men who are trying to get out of Ukraine. Now, not all these guys are people who are trying to escape mobilization. Some of them are. These are people who don't want to join the army. Some of them are people who don't want to join the army. And actually, it was quite interesting. The week before I got there, there was one young guy who didn't want to join the army. He likened Ukraine to Eritrea, which was a bit of a stretch of description. He said he didn't want to be sent to die for Zelensky on the front he had video blogs, he'd vlogs, his own escape. So this is the second part of how I crossed the border with Ukraine. I want you to know that I didn't pay anyone and no one told me what I had to do. I came up with everything myself by monitoring the situation and constantly collecting information and, and all that. He'd gone down there to the border. He'd managed to swim across the River Teaser to the Romanian side, claim asylum, and then very quickly made it to Prague. But the interesting thing was his actual 
video blog concluded in Prague, where he was recognized by Ukrainians on the streets who all called him a, you know, a coward and actually chased and assaulted him in Prague for having left. Wow. And I read the comments beneath his blog, and it was, there were a lot of people saying, hey, good, good work for escaping. Let me know the route you took. Um, he'd called it Diary of a Free Man. But other people had said Diary of a Pants Pisser. <laughs> <laughs> and really <Ouch>. insulted him <laughs> as, you know, basically as a coward for leaving his country in, in his hour of need. There's a lot of people like that. There are variations as well. You know, the vast majority of cases involving the Tisa River, the Ukrainians trying to flee for one reason or another reason, inevitably war-related. War but while I was down there, the state border guard patrol I was with were talking about the one particular case they had of the guy who swum the river the other way. He had come back into Ukraine, risking his life to swim across that river to be back home for Christmas. So wow. this guy, he was called Stepan Ryshkovich. I think he was about 31 years old. Before the Russian invasion, he had been living in the Czech Republic. His family were there, but they originated from a village in the Carpathian Mountains, just on the Ukrainian side of the border, across from the Tisa River. And his wife, they had kids, his wife and kids wanted to come back for Orthodox Christmas, 7th January, to visit their family. So the wife and kids are allowed to do that easily enough. They cross back into Ukraine, ensconce themselves in their home village just across the River Tisa for Christmas. But Stepan, he obviously thinks, hey, I don't want to be alone for Christmas. Who would? So he has a plan. He actually wanted to surprise his wife by turning up unannounced for Christmas. I mean, what a romantic. What we a like, romantic We guy. like Stepan. He wanted to be home for Christmas. So if he crosses legally, the Ukrainian state border guard is going to be, hey, ho, my friend, you're 31 years old. You're eligible for mobilization. Uh, Off you go down to the mobilization unit. You're in the army now. So he wants to be there, but he can't be seen to be arriving. Exactly. So he uh, pays some smuggler group the other side in Romania to do the odd thing of swimming back into Ukraine. And they issue him with a wetsuit and some sort of, uh, I think he had a life jacket. He was with his brother-in-law, but the two guys got to the riverside edge on the Romanian side of the border and the brother-in-law was like, no, no, <laughs> no I'm not going to do that. But not Stepan, he jumped in. He gets blasted down the river but for a couple of hundred yards by the current and finally makes it to the Ukrainian side, all tangled up in some roots on the bank. But he's so cold, even though he's wearing a wetsuit at this stage, and his you know, flotation device isn't up too much. So he's tangled up, unable to pull himself up the bank. And the Romanians put in a call to their Ukrainian counterparts. The Romanians say, hey, look, there's a guy who's gone across and he's got tangled up in roots the other side and it looks like he might be dying. They pull him out and say, what are you doing? You know, he's swimming back. And he's like, I wanted to be home for Christmas. So he has to go to hospital first because he's got hypothermia. But anyway, oh, <laughs> the mobilization squad find him in hospital. Oh, no. And he didn't go home for Christmas. No, he's got mobilized. Yeah. Uh, I heard later, I could never quite peg it down, that he might have managed to escape again. But uh, no, the last I heard, the guy had come back from Christmas, ended up in hospital and then got mobilized. I mean, clearly... You know, the threat of conscription is scaring a lot of people. We know that, you know, late last year, there was this bill kicking around the Ukrainian parliament, which is trying to change the rules around mobilization. Just tell us a bit about that bill, uh, the, the changes it would bring in, and how it's going down across the country. 
So there's a huge difference really in, in perspective across Ukraine because of its size. If you're in the eastern Ukraine, you know absolutely there's a war on. But way out in the west and in some of the cities, you know, there's no real sense of war. And by the time you go out to Lviv, that's even more exaggerated. And so there is a perfectly normal-looking urban society of, you know, men of combat age who are in cafes and bars Mm. and gyms and going about also their normal civilian day-to-day life who are not at the front. But if the new drafted bill was passed and becomes law, they could end up at the front. You know, half a million people to put at the front over the next year. It's not all in one go. It's over a year. The bill is aiming to reduce the age cap at 27 for going to the front and reduce it, pull it down to 25 is being talked about, which doesn't sound a huge amount, but uh, it is. And if you're 25, it matters. Exactly. And it's, it's also absolutely right that they do get more people off to the front because the existing forces there, you know, leave is not a regular thing. If you're a frontline soldier, you might end up with your unit for months on a front, on a really nasty front. You know, it's really physically stressful, mentally stressful environments. You need more soldiers so you can rotate those who are taking the strain and the stress of it all out, rest and refit them, and maybe allow people who have done a certain amount of time, fulfilled some sort of contract, the time to get on with their civilian lives as well. So this bill is introduced. What happens? How does it go down? Where is the bill at now? So it's, there are five versions of the bill that have been proposed, of which there's one particular one which looks the most credible, which is being debated. It's a real hot potato. It seems that the general staff impressed upon Zelensky the need for this mobilization bill, but he knew it wasn't going to be hugely popular because it's another progressive step of martial law. You know, Ukrainian society, I wouldn't say it's divided in its support for the war. Ukrainian society recognizes that there is an existential threat to their existence. They support a defensive war. But that doesn't mean that everybody, (laughs) even though they support the war, wants to be a soldier. They're horrified by casualty figures. They're horrified by the ferocity of the front. And there's an awful lot of people who don't want Russia in Ukraine. They do want Russia driven out. But personally, they don't want to be one of the soldiers doing that. So you've got, you've got the, the people running the military saying, we need more men. You've got to mobilize more people. You've got Zelensky worried about how, looking, it, looks. how yeah. it looks and how people will feel about it. And then you, you seem to have almost a, a, a little civil war in that class of the people running the country at the moment. You, know, you get the feeling that Zelensky and the, the head of the military are not agreeing on a lot. And that all got much worse over the last week or so. Talk us through what on earth has been happening. There's been rumblings over the last year which have accentuated over the last few months of a rift between Zelensky and his top general, Zaluzhny. These almost came to a head at the end of last year when Zaluzhny wrote an essay on positional warfare. I've read the essay, it's about four and a half thousand words. Basically, the drift of the essay is that without a dramatic influx of Western weaponry, an overhaul and repreparation of the Ukrainian army, there will not be a dramatic breakthrough on the front line and that it will remain in a fixed positional type of warfare. Accompanying the essay, uh, he was interviewed 
by The Economist and said exactly that, that, you know, the war had become effectively a stalemate. Now, Zelensky doesn't want to hear the word stalemate at all. Zelensky's briefings have always stressed the positives. Now, there's a need to stress the positives if you're a national leader in a war. Yeah. You know. It's good for morale. It's good for morale. It's important to give people a sense of hope. And also, it's important to give a message, if you're a leader of Ukraine, to Western backers like, hey, keep backing us. We can do this. However, that still has to be calibrated with realism. And there was clearly a divide between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. Suddenly, Last week, it becomes apparent that Zelensky has signed a decree firing Zeluzhny. Zeluzhny didn't accept this. He was like, I'm not going to resign. Apparently, the decree which has been signed firing him still sits on the table. But then you get other members of the general staff and of the military saying to Zelensky, hang on, wait a minute, you're about to sack a general who has the faith, the confidence, and the popularity of a vast majority of Ukrainians and the vast majority of the army. That's not good for morale. That's not good for morale, and this could blow back on you. But this problem is not solved, and it's a kind of halfway house, which is really bad for both parties. It looks now that there's a rift between the president and his top general, and I would say it's highly likely that Zeluzhny will go in the coming days or weeks. I can't see this as a you know, a position that he can recover from, and it's bad for both parties. Either Zelensky should have thought about it in advance and decided, no, I'm not going to sack my top general, or he should have seen it through. It's terrible because it makes both of them look weaker. Oh, both of them are weakened by this. The rough truth of this is, in a democracy, if a general runs foul of the president, the general goes, and that's the bottom line. Anthony, you've been covering Ukraine for years. You were there in 2014. You were there just before the war. You've been going back regularly ever since. Walking away this time, what did you think about where this war is going? Are you optimistic about Ukraine's chances? No, but I'm not totally pessimistic either. The sense of exhaustion amongst troops at the front is much more palpable now than it was. The level of losses here, the Russians might have lost more people, but they've got a lot more people to put into the war than the Ukrainians. The issue of people, of personnel, is a really key strategic concern for the Ukrainians at the moment. And yet, you know, war isn't a straight algebraic equation. There are successes for Ukraine asymmetrically. There are successes at sea. But war is always won, not just on the battlefield. It's won, you know, asymmetrically, but also it's won diplomatically. And I think that's what really what's missing in Ukraine at the moment. At the end of the day, do you believe that Russia can crush Ukraine and put its tanks into Kyiv? Most insane people do not. And I think Europe would react very strongly if that looked like it was going to become a reality. Do you believe that Ukraine will manage to recapture Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea? I would suggest that we will never see a Russian surrender in Crimea and the Ukrainian flag raised in Crimea again. So if you accept that, and a lot of people obviously dispute what I'm saying, but if you accept that the maximalist aims 
of both sides are not achievable, then how many more hundred thousand soldiers' lives must be lost until people agree with that suggestion I've just made and come to peace talks? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, the podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, special correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd. If you're a subscriber, you can read all of Anthony's dispatches from Ukraine, including his latest, that rather unusual story of a sadomasochism cafe in Lviv. Honestly, you'll want to have a read. And you can find them all at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by Mal Lissetto. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>